Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Today we remember Barbara Ehrenreich by reprising some of her interviews on this show over the years. Barbara Ehrenreich died on September 1st, less than a week after her 81st birthday. I've long admired her as one of the finest journalists in the country. Sharp, stylish, funny, and always on the right side of the class war. I have a few words to say about her, but for a longer appreciation of her career, see Gabriel Wynant's essay on the N Plus One magazine website. Before she turned to writing, Barbara got a Ph.D. in cell biology from Rockefeller University, something I always admired about her. The discipline's rigor clearly left a mark in her thinking, and she was always a reliable partisan of science in a left that was often indifferent or even hostile to the pursuit. Some of her earliest writing was about the U.S. health system, especially its gendered aspects. Some of that early work was done with Deidre English, including a 1972 pamphlet, Witches, Midwives, and Nurses, A History of Women Healers, which I once had a copy of and lost, to my eternal regret. In 1977, she and her then-husband, John Ehrenreich, wrote a famous pair of essays on the professional managerial class, which they updated in 2013. They were an important contribution to understanding the modern social structure, and they've been seriously abused by some one-dimensional thinkers in recent years. In their view, the PMC was an intermediary stratum between the big bourgeoisie and the working class, who basically transmitted orders and discipline down the social ladder, but who themselves were in an ambiguous class position. In the 2013 update, they noted that some of the PMC was slipping into a more precarious form of life, while some of its upper layer was getting a lot richer. During the 1980s, she wrote, among other things, The Hearts of Men, American Dreams and the Flight from Commitment, and Fear of Falling, The Inner Life of the Middle Class. Both these books are examples of how she brought together big-picture analysis with how those big trends shaped people's inner lives, an important task that isn't performed often enough. In 2001, Barbara published the book that made her seriously famous, Nickel and Dimed, her look at low-wage work in the U.S., which she investigated by taking jobs as a waitress, cleaner, and store clerk. It originated with a suggestion from Lewis Lapham, then editor of Harper's Magazine, where a version of the story first appeared. As we'll hear in a bit, no one was more surprised by its bestsellerdom than the author. After that came a lot of other work, including three books we'll hear her talk about, Global Woman, a book she edited with Arlie Hochschild, Bait and Switch, a look at downward mobility in the white-collar set, and Bright Sided, an attack on the harmful role of mandatory optimism in American life. Barbara was on Behind the News at least five times, most recently in 2009. I don't know why I didn't interview her more recently than that. I've been kicking myself over that oversight for three weeks now. I interviewed her about Nickel and Dime when it came out in 2001, but alas, I don't have a copy of that show. The earliest I do have is this one, from 2004, on the publication of a book, Global Woman, she edited with Arlie Hochschild. Let's listen to some of that, which opens with her thoughts on the reaction to Nickel and Dime. I apologize for the audio quality of these interviews. They're old, and the primitive technology shows. I guess it's been quite a while since uh, we talked to you, so uh, were, were you surprised by the stunning success of uh, Nickel and Dimed? Well, yes. <laughs> yeah, nothing like that ever happened to a book that I wrote before. So, you know, it's great, and it, it continues to cling to the bottom of the New York Times paperback bestseller list. So uh, people are, are still reading it and passing it around. What do you attribute it to? I don't know. You know, it's it's it seemed to me and my editor at the, you know when it came out in uh, the late spring, early summer of '01, the economy was beginning to soften. We the dot com boom had bust. That had something to do with it. People were beginning to people who could afford at that point it was just a hardcover book were beginning to think of well what lies below them. You know, we were starting to read about dot uh, com moguls working in Starbucks you know, after the loss of their dot-com fortunes, of course. So I, I don't know, but I, I'll, I'll say what, what really pleases me is that it has gotten out to a lot of the kinds of people who are in these situations in a long-term kind of way. I run into um, surprising people, front desk clerks in hotels and waitresses and so on who have read it. So that makes me feel good. 
So it's not just the usual gang of uh, intellectuals and policy wonks who read it. I don't think so, no. In fact, uh, I have a, a website, nickelanddime.net, which I created to um, post people's stories on when people would write to me and tell me their, their story, their life as, as a low-wage worker. And it's also a place people can communicate with each other. So uh, please, if uh, you are a low-wage worker, uh, you have something to say to other low-wage workers, check out nickelanddime.net. That's one big word, nickel and dimed. Now, what about the political reaction? There's certainly a great popular reaction to it, but uh, do you see low-wage work, uh, the problem of the working poor, uh, which is a, you know, a very large portion of uh, the employed population in the United States, is this reaching any kind of political salience, or is just this one of these things that people uh, kind of cluck their tongues and say it's an unfortunate fact of nature? Well, whether you mean are the people who are the working poor themselves getting politically mobilized? No, well, that, but also just in, in, in the, the you know the, the people who set political agendas and such are are, are they paying uh, more yeah, attention? Yeah, I guess than, they than pay some attention, some of them. But um, both Dean and I understand Kerry have referred to nickel and dimed in their writings or talks. You know, a number of Democratic senators and Congress people, when it first came out, invited me to Washington and. They say, oh, yeah, we're going to do something about this. Boy, we're going to raise that minimum wage. <laughs> Nothing happened, but uh, I don't know. You know, I don't know how that, if that's really how social change happens, you know, getting the attention of uh, the powerful and hoping that they do something. It has gotten out there, and I think there is more attention now to the working poor as a category. I, even don't, I don't even like saying the working poor because it implies that there's some great big bunch of non-working poor, which there really isn't. And... Uh, you know, we'll see. There's an interesting thing happening in Florida, where I'm talking you, to you from right this minute, where ACORN has, is trying to get a referendum on the ballot next November to raise states' minimum wage. You know, states can choose to raise their minimum wage for their state, and uh, a number of states, like Oregon, Washington, California, have. Florida should do that. And the ACORN's idea is also that that would maybe lure a lot of low-income people who might not ordinarily vote uh, to the polls for the presidential election, too. I think you had a piece in The Nation a while back declaring that you'd sort of uh, despaired of the, uh, the benign powers of the state. Economist Brad DeLong, among other people, uh, complained that on the one hand you were indicting uh, the system of low-wage labor, on the other hand, uh, kind of doubting the power of state remedies. Uh, is he misunderstanding you? Is there some contradiction there that we uh, don't understand? Well, what I was trying to point out in that um, article in The Nation is that we are seeing and have been seeing for some time now a, a dramatic change in the functions of the state. It's not being shrunk, as the right you know, used to say they wanted to do. But what has happened is that the helping functions, the, the social welfare functions, for example, have been shrinking, while the, those things that have to do with the use of force have been increasing so that domestically, the trend has been, um, over time, more, more emphasis on prisons, less on schools, etc. The question I was raising was, is, is there a point when you can no longer turn to that state to increase helping functions, uh, which we all know we want, because uh, it has become too much of a, well, I'll use the phrase, police state. We're well down that path. So I was raising a rather large uh, question. Now, you know, I continue to say, maybe it's not too late. Maybe we could turn this around and have a government, and I mean both state and federal here, that is providing people with things like health care and so on, you know, that we really need, uh, and stop in this long-term trend just toward uh, the more punitive and coercive functions. Yeah, I think some uh, social democrats were afraid you'd turn into an anarchist or something and give it up on the state. Well, I have those leanings. <laughs> I definitely have those leanings. <laughs> now, uh, something else that was rather controversial, probably more so, was um, uh, what you wrote about um, maids or domestic labor and uh, the relation to the feminist movement and how uh, organized feminism in, in the United States has largely forgotten about uh, the domestic labor debates of the 70s. People like the economist Barbara Bergman are very critical of, of your work, saying that without um, domestic help, uh, women can't uh, have independent professional careers. Did she say that? She did indeed. <laughs> uh, she, she said, and rather pointedly, she said that. Let's well, what did think. I say? Let's go back to that. And I said this both in Nickel and Dimed and then in a, a long, long essay on the politics of housework for Harper's, I, uh, that we really have to think about this evolving servant culture. 
Now, I should say it's, it's concentrated in the top 20% uh, of Americans in terms of income. But that top 20% increasingly does have paid people who come in and take care of the children and um, clean the house and so forth. And even maybe do more expansive kinds of white-collar functions uh, within the home, like setting up birthday parties and everything. Now, it's the maid part, the person who does the really grubby work, that I was most concerned with in, in those essays. And I was talking about the conditions, the low pay on average of people who do that work, the trend away from the independent maid to the one who works for a corporate house cleaning service and you know works in a team, gets paid very low wages. I had done this work while working uh, on nickel and dimed, and the starting pay was 6.63 an hour where I worked and lower in some of the places I investigated. Anyway, under terrible conditions, too, I might add, but I'm not going to go on and on into that. So I, I was just trying to raise all these questions, and I, and I think what got a lot of people mad at me is I did say that uh, personally I, I, don't, I don't have uh, somebody who cleans my house. Uh, I never have. I haven't liked it. I don't like the idea of having that relationship to another woman. I don't think it's evil to do so. If you pay well enough and provide benefits and some kind of job security, fine. But anyway, this this elicited all sorts of um, kind of the, one of the worst insults I've ever gotten was uh, <laughs> resulted from this with somebody calling me the quote Martha Stewart of the left because it seemed so odd to them that somebody would want to do their own housework. Well, 80% of us Americans do our own housework, and I uh, stand by that. But I think if we're going to continue to have that kind of defensiveness about this issue, we'll never have an honest political discussion of this servant culture that has arisen in the uh, upper middle class. I guess uh, some of your critics uh, are just focusing on on the women and uh, letting the men in their lives off the hook. No, our goal in the 70s when we talked about the politics of housework was was to get the men to do it, too. We thought this should be shared. never occurred to us to, that you try to solve this problem by hiring another woman to do it, uh, but that you'd be shared between the um, man and woman of the house, and I would say the kids ought to pitch in, too. So, no. I, I see the, and I think you can make a pretty good case for this in terms of uh, as a historical change, that the shift toward using paid people, maids, was really a lot of women giving up on having that argument with their husbands or their boyfriends. Their cleaning services that advertise, we can save your marriage. Don't have that fight. Just bring in another woman. If you're going to argue that this is insensitive to the needs of professional women and they they wouldn't be able to have their careers if they uh, didn't have maids, I'd say, well, first, what happened to the men in their lives, if any? And secondly... What about some professional, great career opportunities for those women who were cleaning their toilets? Aren't they also part of the the feminist constituency that we're concerned about? Bringing in women to do this kind of domestic work brings me to a topic of uh, the book that uh, you and Arlie Hochschild edited, uh, The Global Woman. Just uh, Global Woman. Global Woman. (laughs) Okay. The women who are brought in uh, are frequently uh, from uh, very far away. Um, So could you you talk about this new uh, kind of almost invisible imperialism of uh, personal and even uh, emotional service? In the wealthier parts of the world, which the United States counts as on the whole, it's increasingly immigrant women who do this domestic work. You know, it's not uh, likely to be an African-American woman as it was in the, say, 1950s. It's likely uh, to be a, a Mexican woman or a woman from the Philippines or the Caribbean. So that's a big change. And in Global Woman, Arlie and I were tra- calling attention to the fact of this enormous migration of women from poor countries to rich countries to be the nannies and the maids. Uh, It's a flow, say, from Mexico and the Philippines to the United States, from the Philippines to Hong Kong, from Sri Lanka to the Middle East, from Northern Africa to Southern Europe, etc. What Arlie wrote uh, in in this, Arlie Hochschild, who's a sociologist at UC Berkeley, is that in taking, especially for the nanny work, you're taking women away from their own children who were left behind in the Philippines or Mexico or wherever, and then they come and take care of the children of people in a, in a wealthy country. And that that, she argues, is a kind of, like, like a new phase of imperialism where you're not extracting gold or rubber or something like that from 
the other parts of the world, you're extracting love and human caring. And leaving, you know, those children left behind don't get it. They may be deprived of a mother's presence for years at a time. In our book, Global One, you know, we have cases like that. Just not seeing their children grow up at all, you know, except for occasional phone calls, while providing all this very intense care uh, for kids somewhere else in the world. Years ago, it was migration was mainly an affair of men, and now it's become uh, people talking about the feminization of migration, right? Yeah. It's, this demand for domestics is a very important part of that. But a lot of the women who make these trips are uh, very often the most uh, qualified and ambitious in their country. They're not generally um, the poorest and most downtrodden, right? That's right. And this was sort of a surprise to me. But it, it really painfully illustrates global inequalities. A Philippine school teacher can make more money cleaning houses in Hong Kong than she can teaching school. It's often the, the kind of ambitious women, the women who have a, another language, uh, who will make these huge migrations, you know, so they can send back money to their kids. And that money becomes very important, uh, both uh, at the personal level for the families, but even for the uh, the, the countries involved, their remittances oh, yeah. figure I mean, their balance of payments. Yeah, the remittances are, have been a very important part of the economies of places like Sri Lanka, with the government encouraging women to migrate for work. Though there's some, some really some second thoughts, and as you know, in our book, there's an article about this in the Philippines, where there's a whole public uh, debate about what's happening to the kids left behind. How are they losing out? You know, are they um, more likely to be in trouble, and et cetera? What kind of policy responses do we, in the face of these kinds of migrations, are we in favor in principle of, of uh, the idea of free migration of, of people and open borders? And uh, if so, um, what kind of, of, uh, of policies uh, should governments uh, adopt in response to these movements? Yeah, I'm certainly in favor of the, the freedom of, of movement and the chance for women to seize whatever opportunities present themselves. But I think, for one thing, there would there would need to be more governmental involvement to see that women are not abused. I mean, at the worst level is coming here, finding uh, some really abusive employers and being having them take your passport away and say, well, you don't go outdoors anymore. It's real enslavement. And there is a group, by the way, in Washington, D.C., that works on cases of enslaved domestics. It's a group called Break the Chains. Uh, and it's located at the Institute for Policy Studies. The worst abuses could be, there could be some kind of reporting system, you know, where you, there's some kind of checkup on these women after they get here to make sure that they haven't been put into, well, into essentially a situation of slavery. Other things would be, and I don't know how to do this in terms of policy, but I would like to see encouragement for these women to be able to get together, domestic gathering places somewhere. Now, this is things that, you know, maybe feminist movement could provide or someone and um, beginnings of some kind of unionization would be great uh, get together and be able to demand money enough money for example to go home on a regular basis and see your own kids yeah these uh, women often work it's lives of, of great isolation right oh yeah I mean imagine you come to a you know a country where you may not speak the language or, or very poorly speak the language you don't know anything or anybody and you, you just have your little room, if you're lucky enough to have a room, inside the home of your employers who can renege on everything that was promised. You know, even if they don't abuse you, they may, it might turn out that you're not being paid what you, what you thought you were or that your hours are really uh, pretty open-ended, you know, from when the baby gets up at 6 to uh, when the dinner guests are gone at 10 or something like that. The flows of, of women are, are, are often invisible, yeah, really it's, really, it's, it's really invisible because it's not like industrial workers or even day laborers who gather. You know, you can see the day laborers will be shaping up for, for jobs on the street. You can go by a factory gate and see people streaming in. But this is privatized. It's, it's divided. Uh, of course, the most hidden it would be those women who are enslaved as prostitutes in the, uh, you know, trafficking of, of women and who may never be able to leave their, their brothels. It's easily uh, ignored. That's some of my 2004 interview with Barbara Ehrenreich. Though witty and charming, Barbara was not given to forced good cheer, which was the topic of her 2009 book, Bright Sided. It was inspired by her experience with breast cancer, which delivered her into a world of upbeatness decorated with pink ribbons and slogans about how cancer can be a gift. The book is not without its critics. My good friend Emily Drabinsky, who was on this show in March of this year to talk about the importance of libraries, and who was treated successfully for breast cancer several years ago, hated it, 
She thinks the salvos aimed at pink ribbons and good cheer are badly aimed, since they can't help people going through a really rough time. I didn't include much of that in this excerpt, because I wanted to focus on her analysis of American optimism more generally. Here's Barbara Ehrenreich from an interview first broadcast in December 2009. Welcome, Barbara. Hi, good to be with you, Doug. Uh, I want to play a little clip of uh, uh, the psychoanalyst uh, Martin Bergman uh, from Adam Curtis's Engineering of Consent, uh, his four-part uh, the second part of the four-part uh, BBC documentary he did called The Century of the Self. Uh, and uh, ask you to comment on it when we get back. It's only about 45 seconds. So let's hear Martin Bergman. World War II was a major shattering experience because I discovered the enormous role of the irrational in the lives of most people. Now that I can say, that I learned, that the ratio between the irrational and the rational in America is very much in favor of the irrational. That there is much greater unhappiness, much more suffering, much more. A, a, a sadder country than one would imagine it from, from, the adverti- from the advertisements that you get. A much more problematic country. Uh, that uh, the psychoanalyst Martin Bergman from Adam Curtis's Engineering of Consent documentary so do you think he's right, uh, Barbara? Is this a, a sadder country than the advertisements would suggest? Yes, that was uh, very interesting. Uh, he didn't exactly draw, uh, you know, connect the dots, though, why this irrationality uh, has, could possibly make us unhappy. Yeah, he sort of treated those as almost equals without saying how or why. Yeah, yeah. No, I think the, the theme of irrationality runs very strong through my book, Bright-Sided, you know, which is about positive thinking, which is essentially irrational. You know, it's the idea that things will turn out all right if only we think about them in a sort of positive way. We can all actually alter reality with our thoughts somehow. Uh, it's very, very strong here. There, you know, there's no empirical basis <laughs> to that. Unfortunately, it might be nice to alter the world with our thoughts sometimes. Even though we are the most quote, positive nation in the world. It's really our reputation, and uh, not always for the good. I mean, very often Americans are seen as callow and shallow because of this positive thinking. But we're, we're not the happiest people in the world. And I think one big in, indication of that is the tremendous use of antidepressants in America. I think yeah. we absorb about two-thirds of the world's... Uh, is it that high, really? Uh, it, it's just a h- huge amount, right? <laughs> yeah, well, right here. the OECD put out a compendium of social indicators uh, some months ago that reported that Americans think themselves the healthiest people in the world, but we actually have some of the worst health indicators in the first world. Uh, we have the highest rate of mental illness of any of the first world countries they sur- uh, surveyed, uh, you know, some of the worst life expectancy, infant mortality figures, yet we think we're really, really healthy. <laughs> this combination of... Uh, almost enforced happiness with irrationality is really uh, just... Yeah, well, what you're, you're saying also culture. overlaps with the, 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 uh, the other idea of American exceptionalism, that we are the best, uh, that we, we don't need to learn from other countries because we really, we really are the best, and we have this unique uh, role in the world, this unique mission in the world, and that is, is very much linked into the garden-variety positive thinking of Norman Vincent Peale tradition and... You know, in our own time, so many countless motivational speakers and books on how to um, achieve whatever wealth, health, prosperity uh, through somehow modifying your thoughts. Now, you've been obviously been thinking about this sort of thing for a long time, but you got into this phase of thinking about it uh, after receiving a diagnosis of breast cancer, right? Yeah, this was about eight years ago. And the thing that shocked me completely was that there didn't seem the kind of fem- to be the kind of feminist support groups I would have gotten some help from. Well, what about all but those pink ribbons? Was, They're quasi-feminist. Yeah, there's they? this pink ribbon culture in which you're supposed to be very positive about your disease. You're supposed to even think of your disease as a blessing, as a gift. That word, I'm not making this up. You know that cancer is a gift um, because it will end up making you um, more evolved and spiritual and sensitive and so forth. Now, I, you know, if that's idea, your idea of a gift, I would say, get me off your Christmas list. <laughs> um, my feelings were distinctly ungrateful. 
I, How know, could it be otherwise? I mean, are, are people, I mean, could you tell if people really feel this or are they just saying this? I don't know, Doc. <laughs> you know, it seems, it seems to me unlikely, but there, you know, books have been written on the subject. There, you can get yourself a T-shirt on the web now saying, thank you, cancer. Mm-hmm. Not just for breast cancer. You know, you can be thankful for prostate cancer or whatever. And I thought this was bizarre. I felt it was ugly, really, because we're talking about a pretty terrible disease and one which we don't even know the cause of, probably environmental, uh, because it's, the disease is so much more common in industrialized countries. Well, you also suspect yours was, as they say, iatrogenic, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I had been taking hormone replacement therapy uh, because I had been convinced by the all the, um, shall we say, very positive propaganda that hormone replacement therapy would uh, prevent heart disease and um, Alzheimer's. And hey, you know, that's pretty easy, so I'll, I'll take this. And then, of course, it turned out in 2002 that it was a big risk factor for, for breast cancer. Two years after my diagnosis, that, that's what, you know, it turned out. And I suspect that was probably the factor in my own life, since there weren't any hereditary factors that I know of. Uh, the people who uh, embrace the positive attitude towards cancer uh, do so not just out of uh, instinctive cheerfulness, but they actually think there's some therapeutic quality towards a positive Well, that's uh, why they're, attitude, they're so right? insistent on it, because the dogma was that it remains, though I think maybe some of us have made a bit of a dent in it, but the dogma is that whether you recover or not it depends upon your attitude. A positive attitude will lead to recovery. A negative attitude will weaken you in the face of the cancer. There's just so many levels in which you can refute that. Uh, one of them is empirically, you know, big. there have been big meta-studies now from the University of Pennsylvania showing, no, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, people who are in therapy, for example, or who are in support groups are more, no more likely to survive uh, than those who aren't though you would expect them to be somehow more positive. Also, the, the spurious pseudoscientific reasoning behind that is that the immune system is boosted by positive thinking. Everybody's heard that, right? You've heard that. Oh, uh, You've got to be yes. careful and your immune system it, will it, be. It's in, this kind of thinking is endemic around here, I've got to say. Uh, you know, there are people Where? who think you can, uh, around this radio station, you can hear oh, people oh, who <laughs> think you can... Uh, Cure diabetes with positive thinking or, you know, live forever with uh, the herbs that you can find in your kitchen. So, uh, you know, I'm yeah, certainly very familiar with this stuff. The thing about the immune system raised some red flags for me because I have a Ph.D. in, as it happens, cell biology, in particular cellular immunology. And one of the things, you know, that you should be immediately concerned about is that the immune system doesn't fight cancer or not, you know, not the great majority of cancers in any way, because cancer is not a foreign invader. That's part, you know, it's our own body cells gone crazy. We're listening to Barbara Ehrenreich from an interview about her 2009 book, Brightsided. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. Back with more of that interview after a musical break. Some of Komm Darling Lassen's Tanzengehen, a remix of a 1980s song by Menea D. by Poloka Kroch, part of the Monica Werkstatt Collective. Inspired by the increased tensions of Cold War II, the lyrics say, The world may end, darling, let's go dancing. And now we're in Cold War III. And here's some more of my 2009 interview with Barbara Ehrenreich. 
And uh, this uh, discovery of the upbeat uh, approach to cancer uh, led you into exploration of this whole economy and philosophy of upbeatitude. Let's take a historical look at it first. You've got a very interesting chapter where you uh, talk about the evolution of American thinking in the 19th century from pure Calvinism into um, upbeat uh, Emersonian eddyism. So tell us a little bit about the birth of optimism, the American spirit. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm kind of sympathetic to the original positive thinkers in America. Uh, there is an interesting character. I mean, the most important of them, actually, is somebody who's very not well-known at all, and that's a guy whose name was Phineas Parkhurst Quimby, who was an artisan. He was not formally educated. He was a clock repairman in Portland, Maine, and on the side, he was also a metaphysician. And also on the side, he was a healer. You know, he would take people who had what was very common among middle-class white people in America then, this kind of invalidism, this vague complex of uh, symptoms, and he would tell them, and what he, I should say first, he analyzed that as a product of the Calvinist religion, the dominant Calvinist religion. You know, people were being told all the time in, in, in church that, that they were wretched sinners and that the likelihood of eternal torment was uh, well above 90% after death. So he, he broke through that and said, hey, it's not so bad, you know, and you can choose to be mired down in this dreadful religious melancholy, or you can pull yourself out of it. So I'm down with that, right? Uh, then in the, uh, and, and the transcendentalists, like Emerson, uh, very much picked up on, uh, on this um, and maybe came to it for their own reasons, too. But by the 20th century, it had turned into pretty much a, a get-rich-quick scheme. But there was also Mother Eddy and her crazy Christian science. Oh, yeah. Christian scientists could easily get to the phone right now and call and say, I'm completely wrong. It was all Mary Baker Eddy who came up with uh, the whole positive thinking outlook. And she was a patient of Phineas Quimby's and was much taken with his method. Uh, she was suffering from a huge variety of illnesses that we might recognize today as somewhat psychosomatic, uh, indigestion, lower back pain, everything. I'm, I've had these illnesses, so I don't sneer at them. But, you know, she went to Quimby, she was healed, and then she started doing the same thing. And she was a very effective writer and speaker. So she was able to popularize it in a way that Quimby had not been. Well, and then the strain of thinking that they, they unleashed was that the proper frame of mind, the proper thoughts or the proper visualizations or whatever could control the internal bodily processes but also can control the outside world. I mean, you could have health and wealth uh, if you just thought correctly, right? This, I mean, this is what has uh, continued to this day. It goes back to these 19th century people. It started in recent decades to be called the, quote, law of attraction, as if it were a law of physics that what is in your mind will attract things to you. So if I focus on a million dollars, and if I focus hard enough on that, it will actually come to me uh, by this mysterious attraction. Now, what is this? Well, for a while, uh, you know, they played around with magnetism. It must be magnetic force exerted by our thoughts. Uh, you, as you may have noticed, our heads don't tend to stick to refrigerators, so that's an unlikely explanation. We don't exert a lot of magnetic force by thinking. More recently, it's all been, quote, quantum physics. Don't even ask. <laughs> uh, I've studied physics. There, there's nothing in quantum physics that says your thoughts control the universe or you can make things happen just by thinking them. But it's an attempt to give a scientific uh, veneer to uh, utter mysticism and nonsense. Why they even bother, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess that's a kind of a tribute to science or its a prestige in our society that they would even bother to come up with these things. But I... Well, you know, Adorno has these theses on occultism, and one of them is, you know, that they try to be all mystical and spiritual, but they want to weigh the soul at the same time. That was some of my 2009 interview with Barbara Ehrenreich, based on her book Brightsided, published by Metropolitan. And now an excerpt from a September 2005 interview with Barbara on the publication of her book Bait and Switch, also from Metropolitan, her look at downward mobility among white-collar workers. Barbara's description of the job world of 2005 seems almost alien in these perhaps dwindling days of worker shortages and quiet quitting. 
so after uh, uh, having uh, in, inhabited a set of uh, low-wage jobs, you've uh, moved up the social ladder a bit and uh, tried to get a job uh, in corporate America. Tell us about, uh, first of all, the kind of uh, career coaches you, uh, you, you first uh, approached to, uh, to launch your new career. The idea was that I wanted to understand something about downward mobility, really, because since writing Nickel and Dime, I, I get a lot of letters from people in tough situations, and I was surprised at how many of these people identified themselves as having college degrees and master's degrees in some cases, and having once had white-collar corporate jobs. So I thought, what's going on here? This is an aspect of poverty I had not thought about and decided to, well, get a corporate white-collar job myself, which I thought would take about four or five months. And in the meantime, of course, I would be learning about how hard it is to get a job or how easy or whatever. One of my starting resolves was that I would take any kind of advice and help I could get. You know, I would look for guidance. And, you know, fortunately or not, I don't know which to say, there is a lot of help these days for a price, uh, because since the mid-'90s, this whole so-called transition industry has grown up around white-collar unemployment. Career coaches are a very large part of it. So I had, um, actually I had several of them, or encountered them in one way or another. They will tweak your resume, help pump up your resume, uh, pump up your attitude. They all want to test your personality. An interesting thought right there, because <laughs> I couldn't see what that had to do with anything. Is this to lend it some sort of scientific credibility, or is this to prepare you for what uh, the corporate headhunters are looking for, or what? It's a mystery. Doug, I always think of the corporate world as something very rational. Must be right. It's all, they have to focus on the numbers, on the bottom line. And yet that's not what I found. Most major corporations administer these personality tests, which have been completely discredited. I should mention an excellent book that came out a few months ago called Cult of Personality by a woman named Annie Murphy Paul. She just shows how the major tests that are used are useless, have no predictive value, no scientific basis, yet everybody in the corporate world seems to believe in these things. Now, I took one test, the Enneagram test, which is a really dodgy <laughs> kind of new age thing derived. Sounds like Scientology. Well, it's derived from, or so the websites tell me, from ancient Sufi wisdom, from ancient Celtic lore. You know, it's just a new age hodgepodge. I found it almost incomprehensible. I just couldn't even understand the questions, in part because the, the, the wording is so poor or ambiguous, like, you know, agree or disagree to describe yourself. I am, quote, wow, W-O-W. What does that mean? Well, Am I wow? Tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. But, oh, well, thank uh, you. But, you know, what, do you, what does that mean? Anyway, uh, in that test, my coach told me that my personality was good and loving, also melancholy and envious, and that the bottom line from all that was somehow that I was not probably somebody who should be a writer. Well, boy, that's, uh, that's some good test. So how did you, uh, we're all supposed to brand ourselves, as Tom Peters taught us, uh, how did you brand yourself or package yourself uh, for uh, what would have been a really uh, major uh, change in your career path? Well, I presented myself as a PR person, because that's something I actually could do. A lot of people in PR come from journalism. It's a writing, it depends on writing and verbal communication. And I thought, this is something I can do. I didn't want to put anything in my fake resume that I could not actually, in good conscience, do. And I'm sure I could have been a crackerjack PR person, as my uh, one of my coaches urged me to put it. So that was um, what I was. I had a different name, too, because I was a little afraid that my real name, Barbara Ehrenreich, would uh, turn up a little too, ma too many uh, Google entries, if anybody looked. So I had a different name. How did you begin your job search? I drafted uh, a rough draft of a resume. I first I had the career coach who, you know, I just told you about who told me I couldn't be a writer. Then I went to some other career coaches, had more personality tests, a lot more resume tweaking, and then I let myself loose into the world of so-called networking, getting out there in public, meeting people, 
uh, who mainly turned out to be other job seekers. There is, and you probably are aware of this, Doug, there's a tremendous amount of churning going on in the corporate world. People, whether it's large layoffs, like the ones that have just recently been announced by Hewlett-Packard and Kimberly-Clark and other places, or individual firings and some kind of cost-cutting measure that someone has decided to institute, reorganizations, outsourcings. So there's this constant churning of people out of the corporate world who then try to get back in or find some other line of work. Uh, And that's the kind of people I was with. What kind of people did you meet in, in the course of this networking, in the course of this job search? Presumably they were not in this in a research project. But we'll, no, I don't we'll, think any of them were undercover. <laughs> what can you say about, about the, the kinds of folks Mostly that you Mostly middle-aged white people who were in things like marketing and IT or information technology, some management, quite discouraged people. It's well known from lots of studies that depression is rife among the people who've experienced job loss. The job loss is somewhere up there with divorce or a major illness as a, as a great shock in people's lives. Had most of these people lost jobs or, or are they just looking for others? Uh, well, to it, that was interesting. I was surprised at how many people you run into who are employed but are unhappy uh, or scared uh, for one of two reasons. One could be that they're way overworked. They just cannot take the 14-hour days or whatever is expected from them. And that kind of overwork is endemic in corporations now because they have this downsizing trend since the early 90s, really, has left the survivors in corporations often doing the work of two people. That's productivity for you. That's productivity. Yeah, you, you, you please the shareholders by downsizing, cutting to the bone. And then you have people who, who really can't live that way. I don't know who could, but people do. Uh, and the second category of uh, employed people you find in all these networking groups and boot camps and so on for job seekers are people who are working but hear the drumbeats of layoffs. Rumors have started, they're seeing other people laid off, and they're scared. So I've heard a lot about networking, but uh, how do you do it? What does it mean? Ah, maybe I should charge you if I'm going to coach you in this. (laughs) Everybody else charges in this business. The idea is simply that what gets you a job is not what's on your resume, what you've accomplished, things like that. It's who you know. Uh, So that you have to be out and about amongst people you can be handing business cards to and smiling at and impressing in some way. And the question is, how, how do you go about this? How do you find the business people uh, to network with? I made many attempts, um, sometimes with just other job seekers, and now and then a, a recruiter will show up at these job seekers and networking events, and sometimes by going to actual business gatherings to uh, insert myself and pass out my business card. Uh, were the folks mostly upbeat? Did you get any chance to hear them reflect on, on, on uh, their situation, their their psychology or politics or anything like that? Or is it all just uh, the laid uh, off ambition? People? Yeah. Well, there is great pressure that you encounter throughout this transition industry with career coaches, uh, the advice books, the networking events. The pressure is to never express any anger or resentment you know, about the loss of your last job, about anything like that, uh, about the fact that you might have to sell your house or whatever disasters you're facing. You have to always look upbeat and be cheerful and positive because your attitude actually is the major thing that controls your destiny, whether you'll get another job, why you lost the last one. So the pressure, the ideological pressure, uh, once you enter this nether world of the white-collar unemployed, is just fixate on yourself. It was your, must be your fault if you lost that last job. Don't analyze. I mean, all of this is really nicely laid out on in the uh, book um, Who Moved My Cheese, which I just read quite recently. You know, that when um, the cheese gets moved, you've read the book, haven't you? Uh, no, I've heard it described to me, though. Okay. Well, when the cheese is moved, the little tiny people waste valuable time quote, ranting and raving about the injustice of it all, end quote. Bad move. You know, when the cheese is moved, you just scurry away and find a new cheese source. You never question anything. You just keep smiling. You're getting, you know, this powerful pressure not to question 
not to resist, not to organize. It should be pointed out, this book has spent something like 200 weeks in the bestseller list, right? And uh, Tom Frank says he, he talked to workers who had to, uh, as part of their job, sit in circles and read passages of it aloud. Oh, yeah. So this is a heavy, heavy propagandizing of the corporate class. No, that, yeah, that's. I've heard the same thing, that of uh, being bought up in bulk and distributed to middle-level workers. But you can see the, the ideological intent. Now, when you get people alone, some people will speak quite frankly and bitterly about their experience, although they know better than to express that in a larger forum. So this answered one question for me is, why isn't there more protest about all this turmoil in the white-collar corporate world? Because there is this whole you know, apparatus set up to squelch protest. How did you go about applying for jobs? Did you list yourself, send out resumes, uh, read the want ads? What was the process? Oh, want ads is so 1980s. Um, now, uh, you know, you post your resume on the various uh, Internet job sites like Monster.com and Hot Jobs and so on. And, you know, I thought for me it was a kind of a thrilling moment when I thought my resume was in good enough shape to put it in all these places, including some of the more specialized uh, PR-related job sites. But then you wait, and you wait, and you wait. And that's when I began to realize that, brilliant as my resume might be, it was out there jostling for attention with millions of other resumes. Companies seldom now even bother to have a human being read resumes. They have computer programs that scan them for keywords. Who knows what those keywords are? I would have to say, and most people I met, including some of the coaches, confirmed this, that the job boards on the Internet do not do a lot to connect people with jobs. You um, and also I would have a problem both being um, north of 50. What are the prospects for someone uh, approaching the near-elderly demographic, as they say? Well, the near-elderly demographic in the corporate world seems to be anything north of 40. This is very alarming to me that one of my coaches said, um, you must not have anything in your resume that betrays your age. And I said, well, you can look, you can see, you know, that I have experience that goes back to, um, I think I even had the late 70s. <laughs> and she said, oh, take it all out. You know, you can have 10 years, 15 years max worth of experience in your resume. So, you know, you could be... Did I wonder if you were in prison beforehand? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you, be, you have to, because apparently, you know, experience is not really relished. It's not really treasured by the corporate world. They want youth. Uh, I've, I've met people who were like in their early 40s saying they felt their job search was pretty hopeless at their age. And that, that came with uh, no bitterness or Sadness. even politically Sadness. conscious, just, just regret? Sadness and a sense of defeat, yeah. There's uh, no dawning of any kind of uh, political consciousness among the job seekers you saw. Well, I did speak this in the fall of '04. Several people volunteered to me that they were not going to vote for Bush because they thought he was lying about the economy. What I would like to see happen is is job seekers, blue as well as white collar, coming together in ways that support each other, uh, helping you know sharing stories, for example, is a psychological help. And beginning to figure out how to lobby for things that would make their lives more bearable, such as universal health insurance, such as extended unemployment benefits, such as making corporations a bit more accountable. Right now, some of the major corporations are cashing in on the so-called American Jobs Creation Act of 2005. It's an enormous tax break. allows them to repatriate funds they've had in other parts of the world with the idea that they'll bring it back and create more American jobs, because that's what the bill is called. Well, one of the companies taking advantage of this is Hewlett-Packard, which will save billions and billions due to this tax break. And it has just announced uh, that it's laying off 14,500 people. Now, it seems to me, without being too threatening to corporate power or anything, the government ought to be able to say, we're not giving you all these subsidies and tax breaks in the name of jobs creation if you're destroying jobs at the same time. So did you end up getting a job out of all this uh, effort? Yes. (laughs) I had an offer. Whether you call it a job was another thing. I finally got in my inbox an email saying, we really like your resume. You know, we think you've got a bright future here with us at Aflac, the supplemental health insurance company. So I had my first real interview. In fact, I had two of them. Strange interviews because he never asked me any questions. 
oddly, for two hours. And then he offered me a job as a salesperson for Affleck, selling supplemental health insurance. And I said, I don't want to be a salesperson, but I will manage salespeople for you. I will manage this region or whatever. No, 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 no. I have to be a salesperson, and then I will recruit other people that I can manage. You know, one of those sort of pyramid scheme things. Though I shouldn't, you know, I'm not saying that that is exactly a pyramid scheme thing. I said, okay, well, um, is there health insurance? No. All right, so you're selling health insurance. You've got no health insurance. What's the pay? None. It's commission only. Do I get an office to work out of? No. So this is a job, and yet uh, there are so many people. I give numbers in the book. I can't think of them right off the top of my head, but who end up in these, quote, jobs with absolutely no security, uh, not that anybody has much security. It's a real crapshoot. No benefits, nothing. You're on your own. You just sort of get a license to go out and sell their product. Some of us who are freelancers sometimes look enviously at people with uh, what we imagine to be stable jobs and regular paychecks and and good benefits. Uh, Is that an illusion? Is that a fantasy of the grass on the other uh, side of the hill being greener? Well, I've certainly gotten over any uh, feelings like that. You know, I've been a a freelancer for, what, 25 years or something? And often thought, you know, it's just so brave of me, so noble, I have given up all that security. There's no security on the other side. I think we who are, you know, the permanent freelancers, maybe are better suited to survive. The sad thing is that more and more people are being pushed into a kind of freelancing or consulting, as it's called genteelly in the corporate world, because nobody wants you as a regular employee anymore. I've talked to people who had a job, were cut loose during some kind of downsizing, then invited back six months later as a consultant. Same job, no benefits could be a duration of six weeks or something at that point. That was some of my 2005 interview with Barbara Ehrenreich, one of the greatest journalists of our time, who died on September 1st. I wish there were some more recent interviews, but like I said, I was delinquent in arranging them. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this Bell and Sebastian's White Collar Boy. While Barbara Ehrenreich's death made me sad, I don't think that Requiem's were the right soundtrack for a show in her honor. Till next week, bye. You're a white-collar boy and you gave in to the law Give in to the pressure, the cops gonna get you You were a thieving dog of work until they caught your little paw Your wage won't stretch to picking up jets A custodial sentence, you're not really a boy that community service, you had to go along with your bang And the rocks of the old city docks Oh boy, poor boy Let's get away, but you played it by the book You're a warden's pet, she's a screaming suffragette We ain't in prison, we'll just finish up and go home She said, not for me, I've got plans for later on So she fell to the sarge, she jumped 